Our story begins 25 years ago, in a distant land filled with magic, anthropomorphic beavers, conflicted dragons, and all sorts of other fantastical creatures. Every intelligent creature in the world heard The Voice, a psychic broadcast that promised unlimited wealth and power to whoever could break the Seven Seals. The Voice sparked a brief golden age of adventuring, with people of every cut of cloth traveling around the world trying to find out exactly what these seven seals were. Then war broke out between the dominant nation, the Red Kingdom, and the Unjanath, a secretive, isolationist culture of elves who lived in a forgotten, far-off corner of the world. That war waged on for nearly 20 years, with no one understanding how it started, until finally a peace treaty brokered by Princess Ravello Red, brought an end to the hostilities. The princess disappeared shortly thereafter, and then the Unjanath retreated from their home, that remote corner of the world known as the Outlands. That brings us to today, where the Outlands Exploratory Company seeks to catalog the Outlands and uncover its secrets, discover its true nature, battle the powerful foes that live there, and simply try to stay alive week from week. Welcome back to the Outlands, everybody. Uh, this is Tales from the Outlands. This is a uh, unique Dungeons & Dragons campaign. My name is Christian Hoffer. I am the host of this uh, podcast and also the Dungeon Master for the Outlands campaign. Uh, for our returning listeners, sorry that we've been uh, off the air. I don't know exactly what the podcast equivalent of that is. but uh, We haven't had new episodes in the feed. Yeah, we, we've, we've taken it. We had to take a three-week break schedule-wise Things just didn't line up for a few weeks. I feel like it may have only been two, no, because there was yeah, no, three weeks. It was yeah, yeah. it's it's been a long three weeks. Um, you know, it's we we will talk <laughs> about uh, we will talk about uh, the reasons, not the reasons why we had to take three weeks off, but the reasons why it doesn't feel like three weeks here in a bit. But um, let's get back on topic. Uh, so my name is Christian Hoffer. I am the host. hi Christian. Hi, I am the host of this podcast. Uh, as always, I am joined by Luke Herr, uh, who's the producer and co-host. Hello, everybody. Now, usually we have a uh, third member of the podcast, a guest that uh, is a rotating uh, slot, somebody from our campaign. But uh, this week we don't have anyone because uh, we're just going to be doing a lot of catching up on what you've missed since the podcast uh, last aired <laughs> oh yes and it, it's been quite a it has been quite a trip it's been a weird three weeks people um so for those of you who haven't turned off the pod who are new to the podcast and haven't turned it off because it's like oh my god these guys are just rambling on and on about not nothing what is the outlands campaign well the outlands is a uh a unique Dungeons and Dragons campaign. It's unique for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it has 18 players. That's right. We have 18 players who co 
come together every week to play in a uh, three nights a week campaign. Uh, the campaign itself is divided into three groups, uh, which uh, each of which have their own names. We have the terror team, which are uh, very good at combat. We have the buddy brigade, which is very good at making friends, except for within their party, apparently. And finally, we have the Toon Squad, which is very good at, um, well, they're the Toon Squad. I think that's the best way of putting that. Mm -hmm. All three of them uh, coexist in the same region, this mysterious outlands, a convergence of the planes, a place where all the different planes from Dungeons and Dragons cross over into one remote corner of this world. Um, quick question, because I have been doing a lot more cosmology reading for reasons that we will get to. This is technically distinct from the Outlands from 2nd edition. Yes, so um, I guess we can talk about this a little bit more. Um, so um, the Outlands uh, is, a, is a homebrew campaign that I myself uh, came up with. However, it is inspired heavily by... Um, several different campaign settings, uh, the most notable of which is Planescape. And the name of the Outlands is actually taken from a region, from the Planescape campaign setting, kind of in honor of that. Um, that was kind of like the first clue uh, that uh, we were going to get into uh, multiplanar hijinks. Um, you know, I didn't want to give away the big twist of the campaign to our players so early. Um, but that was like the first little tease that, you know, uh, what they were about to get into. Um, so unlike normal D&D podcasts, there's, there's usually two different kinds of D&D podcasts. We have our uh, Let's Play D&D podcasts, the, the uh, Critical Roles, the Adventure Zones, um, the uh, RPG Pals Club. Um, I got you. Uh, Thank you. You uh, did. You know, there's those styles of uh, campaigns. This is not that or that style of podcast. This is not that. Then you have your uh, more technical podcasts, uh, the podcasts that talk about Dungeons & Dragons itself, uh, game design, uh, adventure theory, uh, D&D news. That's not what this is either. This is a podcast that talks about a specific campaign. Imagine if you were sitting at a table listening to your friends talk about a very interesting Dungeons & Dragons campaign uh i mean i've done that so many times it's like oh hey i'm sitting next to someone you played D, D, yeah oh what's the wildest thing that ever happened it's the time i had to eat my way out of a chimney we haven't done that yet but who knows maybe soon no they haven't released the uh lords of madness content for 5e that <laughs> i would need to do that so this podcast will be principally talking about what has happened in the Outlands over the past three weeks. If we have time, we will probably talk about, we actually got a listener question this week, and so we'll talk about that, and then we will talk about what is coming next for the Outlands, as it is April 1st, uh, when we were recording this, and the first campaign of the Outlands is starting to draw to a close and what that means for the campaign, what happens next, and uh, what that means for the future. And I suppose also, you know, a little bit what that means for the podcast. 
So let's let's just jump right in, shall we, Luke? That sounds like a excellent adventure. Previously, in the Outlands, Malkador and Cleaver, two members of the Buddy Brigade, returned from a lengthy, let's say it's a diversion to the Shadowfell. They came back a bit changed, but mostly the same. the The big difference is is that while they were only gone for two months from the Outlands, they experienced two years in the Shadowfell. While they were gone, the various groups heard a prophecy of a summer of blood from the Faerim, these ancient aberrations basically dedicated to consuming all things that are actually imprisoned somewhere within the Outland. The Faerim, as as our um, you know intro, I believe, talks about. Doesn't our intro talk about it? It's been a while since I've actually listened to the intro. It has been a while. I don't quite remember either. I just stick it in at the front. Well, there we go. Wow, we are not good at our jobs. No, we are. <laughs> we just also have multiple other jobs or no jobs, which makes looking for jobs your jobs. Oh. Uh, if you're listening to this and need an e-commerce support specialist, let me know. Anyways, uh, so yes. the, the Faerim are kind of the big bads of the campaign, and they are sealed away in a place known as the Pit of the Faerim by a magical wall. That wall is uh, has stayed intact uh, due to the Seven Seals, uh, these ancient artifacts that are scattered throughout the Outlands. However, the Faerim uh, believe uh, that by breaking one more seal, as two of them have already been broken, uh, that breaking one more seal will lead to that wall's collapse and will allow the Faerim themselves to be freed. Additionally, there are three separate distinct factions that seem to be trying to break a seal. Uh, one of these is the Arms of Paradise, a uh, cult organization that seems to uh, be tied to the Faerim somehow. The second is a uh, are entities known as the Heralds of the Faerim, these uh, elemental creatures that serve the Faerim and are dedicated to trying to free them from their prison. And the third is the Vampire Cartrum, who doesn't have any ties to the Faerim, but is an enemy of the Outlands Exploratory Company, our heroes. Yeah, that's that's kind of our bad. We sort of became academic pen pals, and then we mess with a lot of his friends after saving his life, and now he wants to just murder all of us. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, finally... Uh, the Tuscali, a race of bee people who have ties to the seals, to uh, uh, the Unjanath, this ancient race of, uh, this ancient culture of elves that uh, used to reside in the Outlands. They went into hibernation after their collective hive mind was attacked by an avalith named Duwop, in part due to um, some unwitting assistance from the uh, various company explorers. Um, to let the hive mind heal, uh, the hive mind itself retreated into the mind of one of the adventurers, a cleric named Kalen. During this entire process, the Tuscali also handed over their seal of nature, one of these seven seals that I just mentioned. However, that seal was destroyed by the Clockwork Army. So, let's address the elephant in the room, shall we, Luke? Yes. Let's talk about what happened in Tigermouth Cave. So the Buddy Brigade was like, you know, we never get treasure. 
because of that darn six-year-old child flop arm, we didn't get treasure on the boat. We just keep missing out on opportunities. So we heard that, oh, Tiger Mouth Cave, that will probably have treasure. Cleaver's back. Cleaver's down to go and get treasure on her first mission back. Luke is really excited because he got a new illustration of Cleaver from a Patreon artist who he supports. And uh, yeah, so we went and after dealing with some of our initial drama, which is now usually what a third of our night is at this point. Yeah, I'm going to be fascinated to see how we fill up the time with our current shenanigans (laughs) where we are absolutely divorced from the outpost. We've been dealing with uh, drama along the way. We met Ellie Windrow and Ashmaker being the big red dragon who is sort of Sundere, but now at this point he's sort of just like a very chill dragon who cares about everybody very much. Yes, he uh, he considers the uh, members of the Outlands Exploratory Company to be part of his horde. Mm-hmm. The true treasure is the friends he made along the way. That's literally what it is. Mm-hmm. And Monk Ellie, legally distinct from Ellie Windrow, even though they are related. Yes. Monk Ellie found out that she is a daughter of Unjanoth royalty. Her father was a prisoner of war. Her mother was a elven princess. Uh, elven queen. Elven queen. Yeah. She, uh, her, Ellie's, uh, Ellie's mother, both of Ellie's mothers, because they're half-sisters, um, is the leader of the Unjanoth, uh, which is, you know, not quite royalty, but, you know, in, uh, you know, English, you know, to, to put a title on it, it's, it's their queen. Um, so yeah, so, uh, Ellie and Ellie, you know, are family, and, you know, what's more is, and this, this kind of came up, uh, I guess we'll sidebar for a second, um, you know, this hasn't been discovered yet by Ellie in the game, but the players know about this, um, Monk Ellie is technically double royalty. She is a noble of the Red Kingdom and also a um, equivalent to a princess of the Unjanath. So she is a double princess. So it really is a Hulkling situation. Yeah. Also, she is like a you know she's a demigod. <laughs> you know characters. <laughs> it's just uh, you know you you talk about the oh I'm an orphan who comes from nothing. It's like no, you're a double princess and a god. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And meanwhile, Cleaver, who came back from the Shadowfell where she got married and had a bunch of shenanigans, got into the cave and was like, oh, look, there's there's signs of beasts in here. I have not seen a real flesh animal in far too long. I'm going to feed these things. I have a bunch of meat because I'm Cleaver, and I, I, I love to feed things. And uh, Cleaver wandered into the cave and both succeeded and failed at feeding the pack of displacer beasts that were in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cleaver Cleaver became, unfortunately, the third permanent casualty of the Outlands campaign. (laughs) Yeah, part of that was I forgot to write down her new abilities after she came out of the Shadowfell, which could have potentially saved her. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, instead she got murdered. Christian felt very bad. He spent like you spent like ten minutes trying to 
find a way out and both of us had forgotten her new ability that Malkador had that ended up saving Malkador. But uh, yeah, it turned from a encounter that should have been a bit difficult to, oh, we are completely down a character. Uh, let's try not have everybody die. Yeah, I'll be I'll be a hundred percent honest. Now now that we're uh, three weeks out from this encounter, um, usually um, you know I I committed the cardinal sin of being a DM, and that uh, the definitely fudge some dice rolls to prevent that from becoming a TPK. <laughs> I mean. I've I've been there before. There was a time I was running 13th Age and a group of spiders almost killed the entire party. They killed two members and then it was just like, uh, this is not fun for anybody. Yeah. So uh, roll up your new ones and let's keep going. Yeah, it was, you know, so here's here's the thing. You guys are now level six. Um, that only happened a few weeks ago. You guys are now firmly into, um, you know, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, 5th edition, they kind of divide things by tiers. You guys are mm-hmm. now firmly in, fa- in, in tier 2. Tier 2, um, you know, you guys have a lot more abilities. You know, uh, a lot of encounters are just easier by the nature of the fact that you guys have so much more that you can do. Like, you have Fireball now. Like, you can literally blow up things that you don't like the problem is is that you know uh in the escalation that comes with that like you know trying to find encounters that are difficult for you there's two things that you do you either throw in uh monsters that are uh far beyond your pay grade but is beatable because you're you know there's six level six characters so one on six situation you guys have the advantage you know Unless you're talking about like low, you know, unless you're talking about like literal adult red dragons, like you guys can fight a lot. The other thing is just to throw a lot of low level monsters at you, such as a pack of displacer beasts. Now, for six characters plus a, you know, a cave badger, a pack of displacer beasts is not that hard. Annoying, mm-hmm. but not hard. With five characters. Yeah, that's that's a that's not a not a fun encounter for anybody. It was not fun for me to run. I don't think it was very fun for the players. Um, mm-hmm. I spent the entire time wondering like what I had done wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was a mess. It was a mess. Uh, but you know, out of it, we got a treasure. We got. Uh... We got the Axe of Many Flames, a weapon that nobody in the party was able to wield. Yes. Uh, now, the Axe of Many Flames is a pretty cool weapon. Uh, it has basically a um, uh, a, uh, a swing effect. Uh, anybody within, uh, I forget if it's 5 or 10 feet of the wielder, uh, the, instead of making a normal like multi-attack or uh, just a normal attack action, they can activate the Axe's kind of flame swing and can make individual attack rolls on each person or each creature within 10 feet, five or 10 feet. I'd, I'd have to double check um, of, of the, uh, of the player. Now mm-hmm. the, the downside of this, because all these weapons have downsides to it is uh, basically you start to overheat when you use that flame swing. So you always take fire damage and the fire damage not only permanently lowers your HP until you take a long rest, 
it also starts stacking. So the first time you take a flame swing, you know, you only take 1d6 of damage. But the second time you take 2d6 of damage. The third time you take 3d6 of damage. And if you're not killing the monsters that's hitting you, you're probably losing, your max HP is dropping, and you're probably taking more hits. So it is definitely a um, use-it-wisely sort of thing. But we'll get into, uh, you know, the Axe of Many Flames is the second one of these kind of like elemental weapons that have been found across the Outlands. And the Toon Squad, they learned a little bit more about what those weapons can do. So the Toon Squad, they, uh, while, while Cleaver was busy um, becoming a sandwich for some Displacer Beasts, the, mm-hmm. the Toon Squad, um, during their last session in our last episode, we talked about how the Arms of Paradise had sent people to try to kill them. Now, there was a little bit more to those assassins uh, than what met the eye, but the Toon Squad was in the mood to um, kind of pick a fight with the Arms of Paradise. And so they traveled to the Vermilion beaches and picked a mission that deliberately would bring them into some conflict with the Arms of Paradise. And so they decided to investigate the Driftwood Bonfire. Now, this bonfire is an unlit bonfire and has stood on the beach for months. Like, the players uh, discovered it probably back in August or September of last year. I believe that was possibly the first big core turn that we had discovered it when he fought the uh, demon and the pirates. Yeah, it was either that one or it was the were shark. It was one of the two. I can't remember which one. I'd have to go back and take a look at my notes. But the, the point is, it's been sitting out there for a long time and nobody has touched this. So the Toon Squad finally went to investigate this. And it's kind of funny because the Toon Squad is the newest group. It, um, uh, they were formed in November of this year. Um, and it was kind of like all everybody in this campaign uh, before, like Sundays was our open session. So, um, you know, it was a group of about 10 players trying to split seven slots. And so we decided to uh, add a third night and kind of make semi-permanent nights um and so we added a couple of players so this is like the new group they don't have the history that the buddy brigade or the uh terror team have in the outlands but they keep going and following up on like loose ends that you guys have like left behind it cracks me up and this is one of them so it turns out that this bonfire was actually built by the Sahuigan. uh back when the Sahuigan, uh which are a group of like fish people uh, kind of akin to like Lovecraftian fish monster people. Um, but the Sahuagin built this bonfire as a uh, part of a communing rit- uh, ritual to speak with their god, Ogkire, the two-tailed whale. Now, the Sahuagin were going to try to commune with Ogkire basically to figure out a way to kill the company. However, they kept on taking so many losses from the company and the priests who would perform this ritual were killed by the company because uh, last summer, the Sahuagin and the company were uh, fighting. They, they were in a, a bit of a, um, a conflict. I wouldn't quite say it was a war, uh, but there were a lot of Sahuagin fights. And eventually, um, you know, they kind of abandoned this. 
So the Toon Squad, which is very good at uh, setting things on fire, they decide to light the bonfire. Now, first they had to kill an Arms of Paradise patrol. Um, but they, uh, you know, because the Arms of Paradise came out to try to, you know, mess with the Toon Squad. And the Toon Squad, you know, actually pretty handily killed them. It was, it was pretty one-sided, to be honest. Um, and they communed with Ogkire. So the, uh, the, the big thing that the Toon Squad learned from Ogkire was that uh, Ogkire actually had a tie to the Outlands itself. Ogkire and three other elemental entities created four weapons specifically made to defeat the Heralds of the Faerun. Uh, these weapons were uh, the the um, you know the Sword of Many Waves, which the party the company has had in their possession since basically the th I think it was the third session of the game, like you know basically since the very beginning. Uh, the Axe of Many Flames, which the party had just discovered, and two additional weapons. One I believe is a glaive, and the other is it, the Bow of Many Winds. And in order to kind of like unlock those weapons' full power. They need to be placed on one of four thrones scattered somewhere in the Outlands. Now, the parties haven't discovered these thrones yet. Um, I can say uh, that at least one of the the location of one of them is a is a spot that has been passed by by the company uh, by at least some members of the company, but no one has really found the actual you know thrones yet. But, you know, if they want to turn these things into herald-killing weapons, you know, that is that is something that they need, that, that the adventurers need to do. The other weird thing that happened in, uh, during this communing is that uh, the, the communing ritual was briefly interrupted by a, another entity, an entity bound by chains who uh, was calling on the Toon Squad to free... Uh, it's they, their children. No one knows what this entity is, but, um, you know, uh, this is not the first time that this entity has seemingly hijacked a um, communication with the gods. Might be a problem. I don't know if it's going to tie into the Summer of Blood, but this certainly seems to be a problem that uh, the company will eventually have to deal with. Did it have like a good vibe to it or an evil vibe? Oh, to a it? very evil vibe. Very evil. Oh, okay. So we actually should not be looking to release these things, children, most likely. No, not not at all. Um, okay. I, I mean, I, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just like, oh, please, free my children before the summer of blood. They will be helpful to you. <laughs> and instead, it's more like, free my children before the summer of blood. They'll be helpful to you i don't even think there's like a, a implication that they'll be helpful and even an evil sense you know it's just no free my children they this entity might be particularly calling out to one member of the toon squad in particular mm -hmm. but you know that's just idle speculation on my part what do i know well, there's many surprises for the listeners because I don't think we've had too many Toon Squad members on the show yet. Uh, maybe, maybe in our second cycle of guests. Um, mm -hmm. So that's you know the Toon Squad has been up to a lot of things, and we'll talk more about their um, 
shenanigans uh, throughout the rest of this episode. Now, the terror team, you know, the, the, I don't know, the fist of the Outlands Exploratory Company, they have been going on a series of two-part missions. Now, I suppose I should talk about kind of uh, how this campaign is organized. Um, Traditionally, how the campaign functions is there is a list of different places to explore and different missions to complete. And uh, every week, the the various groups pick something off that list. Um, Or, you know, occasionally they'll like, actually, I would like to um, explore this area because I think it has something to do with one of our storylines. Um, but, you know, that is kind of how this campaign is organized, is uh, they, the parties tell me what they want to do, and then my job as the DM is to kind of um, lay out the scene for what they have to do. Um, when the players reached level six, um, I we changed it up just a little bit. I, I told them, because, you know, a big part of this has been all these missions have been done in ones. We've had a total of uh, one uh, two-part mission. You know, that's that's it. You know, up to up to level six. Um, so for a hundred sessions, we've only had one that has run for more than one night. We changed that when we hit to level six um, in order for us to, you know, because the players were going farther and farther out into the wilderness. Um, the threats were deadlier, so combat could take a little bit. Um, and, you know, the problems are just getting more complicated. So we're starting to do more two-night missions. And so the first one of these is what the terror team spent two weeks doing. Um, shortly after the uh, Clockwork Army around the time that the company defeated the Clockwork Army, the Braided Branches, this group, the secretive group of rangers that uh, operate in the Outlands, they they asked for members of the company to go to the far north, uh, to the Pit of the Faerim. Now, we've known about the Pit of the Faerim for a, a while. No one has ever visited it. And so the terror team decided to go on that quest and they they basically explored three new areas, you know. Um, they they went into um, they discovered this big lake that uh, was always still. There were no waves, even from the wind that blew over it. This still lake. They they discovered a a dead forest, uh, which we call the haunted forest. And they fought these strange zombie-like creatures known as the bleakborn. And finally, they went to the Barren Plateau, this plateau where the Faerim's corruptive nature prevented anything from uh, thriving there. And they fought these strange uh, wyverns, uh, these kind of like almost like tumored, eyeless, um, worm-like wyverns that nearly killed them. It was a, it was a difficult fight. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with what wyverns are, they're pretty much stubbier dragons. Yeah, they uh, we we differentiate them just a little bit, um, but um, yeah, no, they're they're basically um, they're they're basically uh, like stubby dragons. So we've we've changed them a little bit. Dragons are you know more traditional. They they all, all dragons have 
one of the big differentiators in my campaigns, at least, is dragons have scales, wyverns do not. Um, you know, so that's that's one of the big things is they are, but they are dragon esque creatures. They don't uh, wyverns don't speak draconic. They are uh, not um, intelligent in the sense that dragons can talk. Uh, wyverns cannot talk. They are they are monstrosities as opposed to dragons. But yeah. Um, wait, wait. So if they don't have scales is it like a whale skin or yeah um uh rhinoceros skin okay so it's a it's a tough hide yeah uh like uh we're not talking about this mission uh this uh during this podcast but i mean Mm -hmm. you guys fought rock ferns which are just Mm -hmm. rocky wyverns with a very tough hide that was akin to boulders yeah yeah no i'm just making this picture clear in my mind and hopefully in the minds of the audiences so to be 100 percent honest the tumored wyverns if you've ever played monster hunter uh they're the keki um which are these like strange uh like white uh like winged creatures with basically like uh like sandworm type mouse like you know like hmm. uh, necks so they've got these like snake-like necks and a round mouth with like rows of teeth. It's very similar to that. Um, so, anyways, so the terror team basically had to fight their way uh, through all these things that wanted to kill them. Uh, the Bleakborn nearly killed the the melee. These were anti melee zombies, um, which they like. Uh, both the barbarians were in really bad shape after that encounter, and then they went against the uh, wyverns, in which, um, if not for the fact that the wyverns um, wanted to land and like try to eat people um the terror team they discovered they are very melee oriented and also the uh the 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 wyverns um you know are immune to lightning so you know the one of the clerics all of his uh he's a storm cleric so all of his lightning spells were absolutely useless um after several tough fights uh, the the party met up with Ashmaker and Ellie Windrow, who had traveled from meeting the Buddy Brigade, uh, and they were also making their way to the Pit of the Favrim, as Ellie Windrow is a member of the Braided Branches. And they traveled together to the Pit of the Favrim. Now, while the Favrim themselves remain trapped in this pit, which, you know, pit is a... Um, a little bit of a misnomer. It's a very large hole in the earth that's, you know, the the size of, um, you know, it's like a quarter mile long. It's this basically just giant, uh, you know, a giant sinkhole. Um, uh, and while the Faerim are still trapped inside there, uh, as they approached, uh, the 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 players that the party could hear these like these strange noises coming from. Uh, the the pit, uh, the Faerim were talking. They were repeating parts of their prophecy out. Uh, they were laughing. They were whispering. It was quite disturbing. Uh, when they got there, the uh, the the terror team were told to like wait. There were the remnants of a Unjanath city around the pit of the Faerim that had long since been abandoned, but the braided branches were using it as a camp of sorts. And they were told to basically wait in a building for a bit and that someone would meet with them. And they were um, they were accompanied by 
what appeared to be a random ranger, a ranger named Ari. And Ari asked her, asked them some pointed questions about what the company's intentions were, you know, what they planned to do about, um, you know, about the, the arms of paradise, about the heralds, about Kartram. Um, and, you know, there was this like weird back and forth where, you know, this just seemingly a, just a random foot soldier was just like, you know, what is the company doing to help? The party learned a lot of new information. Uh, they learned um, about, they discovered that Core, for instance, Core, the former uh, company adventurer turned into the leader of the Arms of Paradise. They learned that he did not reside in Cathedral Town, which is the headquarters of the Arms of Paradise. He was actually um, in a, uh, another place, a place known as the Rift, uh, where is the area where the Feyrim first emerged in the material plane and like entered the Outlands. Um, they also learned why the Braided Branches could not intervene against the Arms of Paradise. Um, and uh, it mainly was because um, you know, there were some political reasons, uh, but uh, one of the things, and I don't know how well a, of a job I did in like bringing this out, the braided branches don't want the arms of paradise to know where they're at, which might tie into who this ranger actually was. After the ranger like left, the party discovered that she was actually Princess Ravella Red. Um, now, if you've listened to our past episodes of the uh, podcast, uh, Ravella Red uh, is a NPC that has existed in the background of this entire campaign. She is the missing princess of the Red Kingdom, uh, which is the kind of the large country directly to the south of the Outlands. Um, there are many people who are looking for her. She is actually the one who brokered the peace between the Unjanath and the Red Kingdom. And shortly afterwards, she disappeared, and no one has seen her since. And the reason why is because she is in the Outlands, uh, leading the Braided Branches. So, really, that was the first time that this big NPC has ever shown up in the campaign. And it seemed like she was trying to get a feel for what the company was going to do and how prepared they were for the Summer of Blood, that, you know, all this conflict that is about to hit the party. So yeah, so that is what the terror team has been up to. Um, after that, um, I guess we'll go back to the Toon Squad. Um, the Toon Squad, they, they did a lot of like smaller missions. Not, you know, and that's a good thing, quite frankly, for me as the DM. So uh, the Toon Squad went to another location that had been known about for six or more months, but no one had ever bothered to discover. They went to a place known as the Sharn Watchtower, and they were trying to basically take a shot in the dark because one of the members of the Toon Squad wanted to find this bow of many winds. Um, when they got there, they found ice geese, um, which are signs of uh, one of the heralds of the Feyrim, a uh, giant goose named Yaro, the hissing wind. And uh, it turns out that Nyaro was trying to destroy a large map of the Outlands. Kind of like if uh, you've ever watched Game of Thrones, uh, I believe it's in um, 
you know, where um, Stannis, uh, in Stannis's castle, he's got the big map of the, um, of, of Westeros, and it's kind of like a big table sort of thing. Well, there was one of those of the Outlands in the Sharn Watchtower, and they discovered an ice devil, like, destroying it, and, like, about half of it had been destroyed. No one, they, no one could figure out why the uh, Nyaro wanted that destroyed, um, but from the remnants, they did discover a few interesting things. They found the location, uh, the likely location of the Bow of Many Winds. Uh, they also discovered where two of the seals uh, were located at, which had already kind of been known, but this really like uh, solidified this point. Uh, one of those locations was Storm Mountain, which, um, you know, kind of ties into what the Buddy Brigade was uh, up to after they got over Cleaver dying. Yeah, we had a traditional style halfling memorial service for Cleaver, and right in the middle before the Buddy Brigade was about to get dissolved into joining up with the other groups. Yeah. A beautiful, tall, almost seven foot tall, gleaming white angel just rocketed down from far above the sky. And that's the faithful who is a paladin who worships the customer. Uh, and uh, what uh, what race is uh, the faithful? Oh, uh, the faithful is a warforged. So unlike Cleaver, who basically did whatever Cleaver does. Uh, the faithful lives to serve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I believe your suggestions for a new character were someone who could heal. Also, we need someone who will not die instantly. And uh, that is what the faithful is here for. He is here to not die, to help other people from not dying. And also, is he going to find out that he is not actually on a massive cruise ship the way that he thinks he is who can tell that's the power of the faithful yeah so uh the faithful shows up basically the buddy brigade gets themselves their own robot butler mm -hmm. and they're continuing you know a, a running theme of the buddy brigade over the course of the last month is all of their personal problems have come home to roost <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like everyone's subplots decide to peak at exactly the same time, and it has made for some very fun and interesting sessions. Um, one of the big problems here uh, that the Buddy Brigade faces is that they are trying to deal with this situation involving the Lord of Skulls. Now, uh, we've talked about the Lord of Skulls on some past episodes, so you can really get a deep dive into the Lord of Skulls if you, uh, you know, want to listen to some of our previous episodes. But basically, the Lord of Skulls is a lich that holds Malkador's heart, Malkador being a member of the Buddy Brigade. And they have learned that Malkador's heart is in a place known as the Hall of Hearts, which is located in a demiplane somewhere. That, you know, the Lord of Skulls literally has uh, separated his brass citadel from reality itself and has, you know, basically created its own demi plane of existence to place it in. So they need to figure out 
how to get to the Lord of Skulls. And they figured out um, from Cleaver's, you know, Cleaver's last act. Uh, yeah, sh she had gone to the library to basically find a way to save her sort of husband by finding out if there's another way into the Hall of Hearts. And uh, the, the library, whose knowledge is limited to that within the Outlands, pointed them to the Door of Nowhere. And the Door to Nowhere just appeared to be a door uh, in the Step Canyons, but in reality, it was a portal to a very famous Dungeons & Dragons locale. That is Sigil, uh, the famed city uh, at the heart of Planescape. Uh, now, um, Sigil, uh, for those of you who uh, are unfamiliar with D&D lore, is a place known as the City of Doors. And um, it's a planar nexus of sort. They're, um, in D&D lore, and we, we retain this for our campaign, there are portals that lead to all of the other planes in Sigil. The one exception to this, and this is a change that I made, uh, is that there is only one place that uh, Sigil connects to in the material plane, and that is the Outlands. Um, now, Sigil is ruled by uh, an entity known as the Lady of Pain. And the Lady of Pain has a very specific connection to the Outlands, which we won't really dive into, but she is foundational to the Outlands. And the Lady of Pain, when she created Sigil, made several uh, very specific rules. Uh, one of these rules is that she has a ban on fighting, of, on open fighting. Another is, is that no gods are allowed in Sigil. And that's technically a problem uh, for the Buddy Brigade, as one of their members is descended from a god, uh, the, the the monk Ellie. So that is how uh, Ellie found out that she is a demigod. Uh, was like, oh no, this is actually a problem. Um, luckily, they got around that. Malkador had a spell uh, that allowed the allowed him to mask Ellie's. Uh, godliness when they went into the city. And this marks the first time that the campaign has ever actually left the Outlands. And it was to go to this very famous city known as Sigil. And uh, if you're listening and you're wondering, like, no, I'm pretty sure it is pronounced Sigil. No, it's actually the, the pronunciation of the city, according to actual Planescape lore, is Sigil with a hard... Uh, G, um, just just FYI. So, anyways, uh, Luke, what what did uh the Buddy Brigade find when they entered the city? After basically protecting Ellie, we avoided a bunch of scenarios that were going to take up more time. Like a pickpocket tried to steal from, I believe, Uria. Uh, it was Kovir. Kovir, that's right. Kovir is back now because everyone's angry at Yuria. <laughs> well, and also it, it makes more sense that Kovir, who also has a connection to other planes of existence, uh, would go to Sigil. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so like Kovir caught a child who was trying to steal the key, and uh, we avoided some other encounters, and eventually we just saw Kartram, our vampire friend, talking with members of the Shadow Court, who are the Mind Flayers who have taken over the Feywild, and dress all fancy now. And because we couldn't hear what was going on, because the uh, the, the, the they're telepathic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we did find out that they do have something planned for May, which was going to be that Summer of Blood. And uh, then after leaving without starting a fight or starting anything, because we were all very wary of starting a fight and what this Lady of Pain might do, uh, we headed to find the Master of Portals who agreed to give us access into the Hall of Hearts in exchange for retrieving the stone from the top of the pile of stones on top of storm mountain and roca who had joined us who is not normally part of the buddy brigade uh also got a specific mission to complete before the summer of blood as did kovir who wanted to find a way back to his home plane yes now kovir's mission uh was uh very interesting because it was through kovir um, that, uh, you know, Kovir is looking for a way to get back to Eberron, and, uh, the Master of Portals, um, agreed to see if he could find a way, way for Kovir to get home, um, if a, uh, if, uh, Kovir and the Buddy Brigade, uh, destroyed a very specific book that also resided in the Hall of Hearts, a Book of Vile Darkness. Which, if you are a Dungeons & Dragons fan, you are probably very familiar with that book. Yeah, I I remember you saying that. It's like, oh yeah, we can't do that. That's a whole campaign onto itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Kovir, you, you might as well just keep trying to figure out how the faithful can contact his people to get you home because that dog don't bark. Also, uh, thank you for introducing Sigil into this because I bought Planescape Torment for the Switch like November of last year and couldn't get into it initially because it is a very 90s made game. Yeah. And it's like, oh... You can't tell that, like, two doors in the starting location are next to each other. Like, the same doors to go up and down are right next to each other. And the down doors don't look like that. So I had initially spent, like, two hours trying to figure that out. And then the second time was a lot better. I'm having a lot more fun. But, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 funny. Because uh, one of the other roles you said is no fighting in the streets. Which is why we tried to avoid fighting in the streets. And if you play that game... Random bandits just try and mug you all the time. Yeah, well, um, you know, there's no rules against... So, I kind of had to, like, elaborate a, a little bit on it. It's not that... It's basically no open warfare uh, in the City mm -hmm. of Doors. You know, it's it's all about maintaining this very delicate balance. Because Sigil itself always feels like it's on the, the verge of an uprising or a verge of collapse. There's all sorts of factions that live in the city... Um, they all represent the various alignments. So, you know, you'll have a, a neutral good faction and a chaotic evil faction. Um, 
But, you know, all these different groups coexist, and kind of at the heart of that is they're all terrified of the Lady of Pain, um, who's an entity akin to a god. They are always uh, very specific that the Lady of Pain is not a god. Um, but um, the kind of uh, way around that, it was mainly because I wanted to see, you know, part of that was, like, I wanted to see how groups who entered Sigil dealt with problems when they couldn't, like, immediately just try to punch their ways out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, would they try to, like, sneak around it? Would they, um, you know, uh, you know, because cause it's not that there's, like, no murder allowed. You're just not allowed to do it out in the open. It's, uh, it, it, it'll present some interesting uh, opportunities and things in the future. Supposing that, you know, Sigil ever gets revisited. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that in the next episode and where that has gotten us to. Because, uh, you know, we, we like Malkador. And if we can get into that Hall of Hearts, we can also go and theoretically save Mara, which is something we will discuss next week as well. Because we had some Mara lore drops that are pretty big. Yeah. But also, Christian was like, hey, uh, you're going to this mountain. Wouldn't it be a shame if you found that seal that the other party found there? And also, uh, we totally forgot about Lorotorin's uh, ghost bandits that we need to kill. Uh, I will say, yeah. I will say that, um, you know, uh, there are two ghost bandits on Storm Mountain um, that you guys might encounter. Uh, you know, spoilers uh, for the next episode, I guess. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is that is good to know because I I feel like we've killed two of two or three at this point. You've killed two, and you need to kill six. Okay, because the main wiki page says we've only killed one. Yeah, a second one did get killed. I haven't updated it in a while because I'm busy and I have a life. Um. Mr. Braggadocio. Um anyways, uh so the final the final thing that we'll talk about tonight uh, in terms of our recaps is uh the Toon Squad did uh wrap up one lingering plot point that had been around for six months. Uh and that is uh the fate of the Tuscally. Uh now uh as as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh the Tuscally they are a race of bee people. Uh they were early antagonists of the company before the company figured out that the Tuscally uh, were actually trying to protect a seal and um, also um, knew that the Tusc- uh, the Tuscally knew that the beaver folk, you know, were actually infiltrated by the Ableth and they were being manipulated by the Ableth. And so uh, the Tuscally have, were unfortunately taken out of the picture by the Ableth uh, doo-wop, but... Uh, their hive mind had been uh, restored and um, you know, had been saved and was basically uh, healing itself within uh, the confines of Kaelin's mind. And so as spring approached, it was time for Kaelin to return the hive mind back to the Tuscally. Uh, now, um, the mission itself was pretty straightforward. Basically, Kaelin had to go uh, dip herself into a pool of honey um, and make sure that, you know, the hive mind could successfully extract itself from her brain without 
her consciousness also kind of getting sucked in there, which she did just fine on. Uh, but there was a very interesting thing that the party discovered. It turns out that, you know, Core uh, had uh, likely tried to hatch some Faerum eggs um, using some of these, like, hibernating Tuscali as, uh, as sources of food, let's say, um, because Faerum have to be hatched from within other people. And um, the Faerum had basically gone to try to retrieve the seal that they thought, you know, resided uh, within the Tuscalese uh, Hive Pyramid. However, the Faerum had been stopped by the Tuscalese honey, which seemed to be poison to them, and that might be a valuable tool for the upcoming Summer of Blood. Kaelin herself uh, managed to restore the Hive Mind to the Tuscali. They had to kill the old Hive Queen, basically because she had gone um, feral, due to the fact that she had been separated from the, 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 the hive mind for so long. Uh, a new hive queen was established. And Kaelin, who had recently lost an eye, she sort of regrew that eye as a reward. Uh, only this time it was a compound eye, uh, similar to that of a bee. And in addition, um, that eye can also detect magic several times a day. The big thing is, is that uh, the, the Toon Squad was able to um, <clears throat> secure uh, the, the promise of the Tuscali that when the Summer of Blood started and, you know, obviously fights are coming, uh, the Tuscali would be on the side of the company. And so this coalition of different groups and different factions, you know, uh, continues to grow because the company has has made a lot of allies made a lot of enemies but you know also a lot of allies you know the uh, just about all of the early antagonists of the of of the campaign are now now friends of the company you know the goblins uh you have um you know the crab folk the sahuigan uh the beaver folk um the now the tuscali um, you know, all of them are allies of the company, and um, you know that's that that will probably be a good thing when the summer of blood comes. Um, so I guess let's let's talk a little bit really quick about the summer of blood and what that means for the Outlands campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, I mean, the Outlands campaign started because we needed something to do during the pandemic. Um, you know, um, it was, it's, it's an outlet for all the players and me, myself, um, you know, to kind of get us through, you know, this year long pandemic. But, you know, as of the time of this recording, uh, a, a, most of the players have received at least one vaccine shot you know, and so it won't be too long until the pandemic, at least for us, you know, won't be, I don't want to say not as serious, but we will be allowed to leave our houses. With less qualifiers. It, we will be in a better place than we were a year ago. Exactly. Um, and so uh, this, I made the decision um, that this would no longer be a weekly campaign. Um, when, um, 
kind of the, you know, uh, when everyone had received their vaccines um, and uh, we were allowed to go outside again. Now, the Summer of Blood will mark the end of uh, the first campaign that takes place in the Outlands. That does not mean that the Outlands itself will be going away. Uh, and that's a good news for this podcast, too. We won't be ending this with, like, episode 15 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically what will happen is we will probably be uh, starting uh, what, is, what we'll just call Campaign 2 in the Outlands. Um, it'll mean new adventures, um, probably new configurations of players. Uh, I know that a couple people have expressed interest in switching nights. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll be dropping down to bi-weekly. So I'm not going to run, uh, I, I, I play one non-Outlands D&D campaign. Uh, we will not be doing, um, <laughs> uh, I will not be playing Dungeons and Dragons four nights a week. Um, in addition to raising two kids and having two jobs. Um, so we're going to drop it down to bi-weekly. Um, we're probably going to do a time skip for the Outlands, which I'm excited about. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll actually, uh, kind of semi-retire everyone's current characters, um, and, uh, bring in a new cast of characters for, uh, what's, what's to come. Wait, 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 wait. I have to come up with another character. I, if it was literally anybody else, I would feel bad for you, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've got so many ideas that are in my big folder called Revenge Against Christian as a GM. <laughs> um, you know, uh, now, you know, characters like the Faithful, for instance, will not be going away. Well, I actually, the Faithful might. I don't know what will happen to the Faithful. Um, but, you know, like, assumably, a lot of the characters, the player characters, will probably continue to be a part of the Outlands. And we are going to have special, like, things in which the old characters will come back. You know, basically, like, when something threatens all of existence, you know, the you know the, the original heroes will show up. But, you know, this is kind of a, a, a way to get a fresh start without some of the baggage. Um, you know, uh, I, I will offer players the opportunity, if they want to bring their characters forward, they can do so. We are going to drop back down. They, not We won't be doing a level 6 campaign, like, starting things off we'll probably start like level three or level four um so a little bit higher than what we started with with the um first campaign but um you know um a little bit depowered from where we are now uh yeah and like level three or four is where you get enough to like feel like you can do some things and have a focus yeah um, we will probably switch away from uh, the style of campaign that we've been doing, which has been very exploration-based. Um, it's not that that's not fun. Uh, it is very time-consuming, though, for me as a GM. Um, and, um, uh, you know, there will definitely be some exploration. There are still lots of secrets to uncover about uh, the Outlands. Like, uh, I, I just revealed the full map of the Outlands to the players, uh, there are we have a hex map we have 105 hexes in that hex map and the players have only really dis- like explored 30 of it 35 um so you know there's still lots of wilderness out there to explore and lots of mysteries and lots of cool dungeons and and uh ruins and you know big secrets to to explore like we have we've barely even touched on 
um, the um, you know the shadow court. The shadow court's still out there. There's this mysterious entity, you know, telling you know telling someone to free his children. Um, you know, uh, we have a, a dragon prophecy involving three dragons, and you know we haven't even gotten to the third one of those dragons. So there's still a lot of cool things that will happen in the Outlands. We're just going to be doing it at a different pace. And part- oh yeah. I mean, who knows what additional secrets can be hid on the Vermilion beaches. Yeah, you know, there's going to be a terrible flood that's going to happen at some point during like our our time skip and the Vermilion beaches are just going to be gone. It's just going to go straight towards the sunken swamp. You guys have explored those beaches so much. I I I went and like took a look at um I, I was doing some like um like you know what what is left and from my original like plotting out of the the outlands and I was like man you guys literally have found everything that I put on those beaches like literally everything and it's crazy um but yeah so that is uh that is what's kind of going on with um with with the uh with with the Outlands campaign itself. Um so well uh, if you end up listening to future episodes of this and you wonder it's like okay after the summer of blood why are there suddenly a bunch of new characters? Uh why did things jump ahead? Um that's that's the reason why. Um the other thing is, you know, we might like kind of switch up the format of this podcast, maybe just a little bit, because we'll kind of get a fresh start uh, for for the Outlands. We'll be starting a new campaign from scratch. So, you know, uh, people won't feel like they're, you know, jumping into uh, a campaign six months in, which is how this podcast started. <laughs> uh, I mean... They still would be, but it's less of important lore that they missed out on. Yeah, we'll we'll uh we'll we'll do um a couple of things. Um uh you know, we'll 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 figure that out here in the future. Um anyways, uh before we take off, we do have just a little bit more time. And we actually mm-hmm. have our very first listener question. Um so I'm going to pull it up on the Twitters right now. Uh, so, uh, Neural Graffiti, uh, wants to know about this campaign's house rules. We talked a little bit about the house rules, um, that, um, uh, you know, how, how, how the players pick the missions. Um, we already talked about that. It's, you know, we have a very long, uh, running list of missions that people can choose from. Um, but, uh, they specifically asked about the exploration phase of, uh, our missions and also character leveling for replacement characters. Well, I can answer the second part of that question very easily. Um, when someone dies, you know, when someone's character dies in the Outland, their new character comes in at the same level as everyone else. Um, mm. the, the one difference is, you know, since those any magic items or inventory that, you know, the old character might have had doesn't transfer over, so I let players pick one uncommon magic item to kind of help bring them up to speed. Because just about everybody has at least one uncommon magical item. 
Oh, wait, do I get to get uh, the faithful another treat then? Um, you have to get it approved by me, but yes. Um, as for the exploration phase, um, the exploration phase is a um, part of our campaign. So um, especially early on, we've kind of moved away from it lately just because um, we've got a lot of stuff to get to. Um, but how the exploration phase worked in our campaign and uh, is basically this is the phase of the session that mimics the you are traveling from the base camp to a location. What happens during that travel? And it kind of uh, is meant to um, mimic, so to speak, um, the, the travel montage experience. Uh, so every player has a specific role during the exploration phase. Uh, we had a total of seven roles um, because, you know, at different points in time, we had up to seven players playing at a time. Uh, in an ideal world, there'd probably only be five roles. Um, but, you know, we had up to seven. Um, you know, there was the navigator. So the navigator's job was getting the players from point A to point B. And so um, uh, they were in charge of um, choosing the route on our hex map. Um, and then uh, also uh, they would make a uh, survival check. Um, and if they passed the survival check and uh, the DC was based on the distance traveled. Um, and if they passed that survival check, um, everyone else would get a bonus to their exploration roles because the idea being they're doing such a good job navigating and getting the players to their destination, uh, the other players could focus on their respective tasks. Um, then there was the scout, and the scout is kind of your person that's moving ahead of the party, um, trying to keep an eye out for um, you know different things of interest along the way. Um, so they usually had some sort of um, uh, social... Uh, usually it was... My idea was a non-combat encounter. Now, this could be a new location. This could be a, um, like, you know, oh, you see a person in the woods sort of thing. Um, the lookout, uh, meanwhile, and it, like I said, I, you know, kind of split these off because I needed to split them off. We have a lot of players in this campaign. Um, but the lookout... Uh, theirs was more looking for immediate danger. Like, something is coming towards you. They are probably going to attack you. So uh, if the lookout passed, made their uh, perception check, it used, sometimes it meant that they would avoid, uh, avoid a combat encounter, or maybe they'd spot danger before danger spotted them. Um, let's see, or what else? There was the forager. The forager um, would find food. Uh, sometimes they were magical, you know, plants or mm -hmm. magical animals of some kind. Um, the cleaver special. Yes. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, also, sometimes that meant, you know, um, you know, they would find enough food that the players didn't like lose any gold, didn't have to tap into their supplies. So they would like get some extra gold at the end of missions. Um, there was, um, let's see here. What else was there? Um, there's the lore gatherer, which is basically like, I look around and I see like a cool symbol on, on a tree. What does that symbol mean? Um, and what's this? There's one other one that we used a lot. Uh, give me a second. I'm pulling it up now, maybe. Uh, exploration rules. Scout. Uh, forger. 
uh, oh, tracker, the tracker. Uh, so the tracker, you know, basically was usually like I see prints in the ground and it would give you some clue to what lived in like a specific region. So, you know, I like the system. Sometimes it was a little tedious. It was pointed out to me that, you know, it really sometimes it felt like, oh, if I, I roll the dice and if I get something good, something cool happens. And if not, nothing happens. So, you know. I would try to set it up with uh, more like, here is an optional encounter. How do you solve this? And maybe your dice roll gives you some insight into it. But it was just something to kind of make things feel like people were actually traveling through the wilderness, doing exploration, things of that nature. Luke, you had experienced the exploration roles for a very long time. How did you like them? Yeah. Uh, I feel like uh, most of the time as Cleaver, she was going and was finding ingredients and things, and that did a lot for her character, and it was like, oh, here's a reward that we get. But a lot of the things didn't necessarily have a bonus that felt as lasting or as important in a lot of ways, or there could have been some other things that they might have done like avoiding combat or finding something is nice, but it's also a lot of work to develop all of that. Yeah, that was that was my main issue with it was when I when I would go and do prep, I probably spent as much time coming up with the exploration stuff as I mm -hmm. did for the actual whatever the meat and bones of the session was. So, you know, it's it's something that we'll probably keep in some aspect. Um, but it won't be as a, um, won't be as mechanical moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, like I said, I, I didn't dislike it by any stretch of the imagination. It was, it was, no, I, I thought that it was a fascinating idea and it made me think more about what we were doing. Um, something that I really like about 13th age, the system is that it suggests that you do sort of opening montages. And I think something like that might be anything to do where it's talking about how each character interacts with another character is sort of a round robin okay. and maybe finding something to do like that where it's not necessarily always mechanical but it's more of uh the faithful you are leading your party or you are walking along and you notice that malkador has fallen into the mud how do you help them oh no something else comes out of the mud and sort of giving small character moments and then if you like it it's like oh hey you can take an inspiration die for the evening or maybe that's how you find a way to put in a small bonus or a bit of world building hmm i'll have to i'll have to go and um check that out that's that's not a bad idea by any stretch of imagination so um yeah no like i said there's there's a lot of different ways um you know i think one of the things that Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition does kind of poorly is it does not do a very good job of um building wonder into the game uh through a sense of exploration. You know, it's very narrative driven, mm -hmm. which is great. Like narrative games are awesome, you know. Um like I I love storytelling and I love storytelling with, you know, the players. Um, but, you know, 
what I when I think of the style of fantasy story that I'm used to, um, I think of stuff like you know like Lord of the Rings, you know, for instance, um, you know that you know the Fellowship, you know, traveling um, through the mines of Moria, or you know their their travels, um, you know, over the mountains. Uh, and eventually having to turn to go under the mountain into Moria itself. You know, how, mm-hmm. how do you replicate that? Um, well, and that's something that I've been kind of uh, thinking of a lot recently. Uh, on the Established Property Playhouse podcast that I run, I'm looking at adapting sort of a Fallout setting mm-hmm. for an upcoming mini season, And it's a matter of, well, do I want to convert a bunch of things just because they're part of the game, or am I going to be, or should I need to focus on, like, the narrative ways that those work instead and work with those within the rules? Yeah. No, and uh, like, uh, yeah, because uh, uh, my wife is right now uh, playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and, mm-hmm. you know, that game, so much of um, the interesting stuff, like the the, the storyline itself, is kind of like I I could really, you know, take it or leave it. But what I find really fascinating about the game is that it seems like wherever you go, there's just something to explore. There's always a new ruin to explore. There's new bad guys to face, and like while some of it kind of seems like repetitive, you know, um, that world feels very fleshed out you know it mm-hmm. it feels like a a world as opposed to just a um you know um a setting yeah exactly i i think that's like one of the things that you know uh, the 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 mechanics of dungeons and dragons does not necessarily do well some versions of it did like uh there's there's a uh, i think it's i think it's first edition it, you know advanced dungeons and dragons had a wilderness survival book um, which was all about like the mechanics of like travel and like surviving in the wilderness. But you know, I I like to try to repeat it. We've had fun with it. Like you know, like oh, you're caught in a winter storm. You know, like that sort of stuff is a lot of fun. Um, I I like that where it's just like little stuff where you know the dice rolls kind of changes some of it, but it's more like you find yourself in this situation. Like, what do you do? Do you bunker down for the night? Do you try to press ahead? Like what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's that's how kind of we we did with exploration. We'll probably you know tweak it a little bit, but you know it was a fun experiment. I think it, um, you know, I think it worked for what we needed to do, and we'll continue to build on that um, as we move forward into the future. Uh, so, anyways, that's that's about all the time that we have tonight. Um, if you made it to the end of this episode, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to continue to help us, uh, there's a few ways that you can do that. Uh, the easiest way is to, uh, subscribe to our podcast, uh, however you listen to it, whether that's through iTunes or Spotify or iHeartRadio, um, whatever your podcast platform of choices, subscribing to, uh, our podcast actually makes a big world of difference. Uh, the more people that subscribe, uh, the more often that we show up when other people look for Dungeons & Dragons podcasts. Uh, leaving reviews is another great way. Um, you know, Even a rating on iTunes makes a, a world of difference. Um, you can also go and follow us on, our, uh, on Twitter. 
uh, at Outlands Pod. Uh, that is our official Twitter. It gets occasionally updated. Um, you know, like I said, we've been busy the last few weeks, but we'll 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 be tweeting here sooner as opposed to later. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Luke, where can people find you at? Ah, yes, you can find my Twitter at at Coltreg, K-O-L-T-R-E-G, and also you can go and visit my website, LukeHair.com, www.LukeHair.com, at that website where there's links to comics and all the other podcasts that I do, um, and then like Christian dropped and then I dropped, uh, there's RPG Pals Club which is my 5th edition campaign, but also we've been doing a lot of other things. We've got some one-shots, and we may be doing a second promotional series of Exceptionals, which is a very exciting, upcoming, sort of mutants-inspired uh, game, sort of like X-Men-inspired, but it's more about community building. And uh, then also established Property Playhouse, where we have eight episodes of Pokemon RPG, and then Wizards of the Coast had to shut down the RPG because copyright violations. So, yeah, uh, look forward to a Fallout thing for that next. Uh, Christian, where can people find you online? Uh, so my Twitter account is at cboffercbus. Uh, you can also find a lot of my writing about Dungeons & Dragons at uh, comicbook.com, uh, which is a CBS-owned website. So yeah, so if you want to read all about you know D and D news, uh, I cover it regularly. So um, yeah, so thank you once again for uh, listening. That's all the time we have for tonight, um, and until next time, um, keep adventuring. And remember, not all doors lead to Sigil, but all doors lead somewhere.